Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 364. Today's big Bible question, how can we produce much fruit plus 10 Christmas myths busted? So hello, friends, and Merry Christmas to you all. Even if you don't believe that Jesus was born on December 25th, you and I should celebrate the birth of Jesus and the resurrection every single day of the year. Welcome to new listeners from Chhattisgarh, India, which actually has three H's in it, believe it or not. Queensland, Australia, Nova Scotia, Canada, New York, New York, and Grand Junction, Colorado. I actually had the pleasure of visiting Grand Junction this summer. It was an amazing place. Today we read 2 Chronicles 30, Zechariah 12, John 15, and Revelation 16. We're going to be covering two major topics today. How to produce fruit, and then we're going to tackle some endearing Uh, enduring, not endearing, enduring Christmas myths and try to bust them with the Word of God. First, let's talk about abiding and read John 15. Listen out for how Jesus tells us that we can bear much fruit. John chapter 15, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin." Now they have seen and hated both me and my father, but this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me. 
you will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. So one thing I'd like to point out at the very beginning of our discussion on abiding, after teaching this parable about the true vine, Jesus said something that's really pretty amazing and remarkable about it. He said in verse 11, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So he said that right after teaching them about the parable of the vine and abiding and remaining in him. And I think that means if we understand this parable and walk in the truths of it, then you and I will have full joy, complete joy, fulfilled joy. So the big takeaway from this passage, applying it to this year, is this. To this year, the the whole of 2020, and then, of course, the next year coming up, 2021. In this time, as we're going through this raging pandemic, if you and I don't take this opportunity to grow deep roots into Jesus right now during the pandemic, it's going to be a wasted year. It's going to be a wasted season. It's going to be a wasted 2020 and 2021. If, on the other hand, we do grow deep roots into Jesus, abiding in him, remaining in him, then 2020 and 2021 will be one of the most important and valuable years of our lives. And I can think of no year, no period, no episode in my life beyond this pandemic that has offered more opportunities to grow deep roots into Jesus than this year. So how do we remain in Jesus? Well, looking at scripture, I see four different ways. Number one, we do it by the words of God, by listening to, pondering on, and meditating on the word of God. So 1 John 2, 24 and 25 says, what you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he had made to us eternal life. Of course, John 15, 7 says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. That's the thing. Because the words of God, the word of God, the teachings of Jesus are supernatural. They're living and active. So when we meditate on, when we memorize, when we read and study and think about and obey the teachings of Jesus, then it is as if he's with us in that moment because his word is living and he is the word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. So when we're in the word of God, we are abiding in Jesus. Number two, we remain in Jesus by loving each other. 1 John 4, 11, 12 says, Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. The simple action of loving somebody with our actions, not just our words, but our actions and our service will cause us to abide in Jesus. Number three, if we share about Jesus, proclaim him, preach him, teach him, write about him, etc., confess his name to our friends and family and people we work with, 1 John 4.15 says, whoever confesses, that means say with and agrees, that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. So our proclamation of Jesus causes God to remain in us and us to remain in him. So we're going to be fruitful. Finally, number four, daily consuming the gospel. And I use the word there, consuming, intentionally, because in John 6, Jesus proclaims that he is the bread of life, the true bread that we discussed a couple of weeks ago on the show. He is true bread. This means something not less, but more than real, literal food. 
and his blood is more than real and literal drink. And this passage is pointing us to the reality that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, which is the gospel. And his body was broken for us. His blood was poured out for us. And to abide in Jesus, we must take hold and consume that good news every day. What that means is read it, remember it, rejoice in it, and refresh in it. John 6, 56, Jesus puts it in the most visceral way possible. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. So remember, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, Jesus was not being literal here. He was being beyond literal. We consume Jesus by remembering what he's done, by pondering it, meditating it, thinking about it, proclaiming it, thinking about the gospel in as deep a way as possible, reading it, remembering it, rejoicing in it, and being refreshed by it. And that is how we consume the bread of life. All right, 10 Christmas myths I want to talk about uh, today really quickly because I guess this is appropriate for Christmas. 10 Christmas myths myths that a lot of Christians probably believe is in the Bible, but probably isn't in the Bible. So number one, some of these aren't going to surprise you. Some of them might surprise you. Number one, a myth. Jesus was born on December 25th. How is that a myth? Well, nowhere in the Bible does it say where Jesus was born, what date he was born. Early Christians, actually some of them thought the celebration of birthdays by the Romans was a little bit pagan and they didn't do a lot of it. Regardless, the Bible neither condemns nor encourages birthday celebrations, and the Bible most certainly does not specify when Jesus was born. Now, pair that with myth number two, because it's important. Myth number two, Jesus was surely not born on December 25th. Well, that's a myth too. It might even be a bigger one. Christmas in Bethlehem usually features highs in the upper 50s and a low around 40, at least on average. No idea what it was back in the day, but that's not great weather, but it's not terrible weather either. Uh, We live in a climate in Salinas, California that is fairly similar to Bethlehem. Maybe Bethlehem is a little bit colder, but probably less windy. And I guarantee you people can be outside and live outside in this climate. The Bible never says Jesus was not born on December 25th. The best argument in its favor was the in the favor of Jesus being born during the winter is the fact that the manger was inside, which is much to be expected on a cold night, but not on a warm night. So, Hippolytus of Rome, born in the 100s, wrote this, For the first advent, or coming, of our Lord in the flesh when he was born in Bethlehem, eight days before the calends of January, which is December 25th, the fourth day of the week, Wednesday, while Augustus was in his 42nd year, um, but from Adam, 5,500 years. Now, supposedly, Hippolytus of Rome wrote that, uh, who was born in the 100s. Now, that quote is a little on the disputed side, but you can do your research into it. All I'm saying is there is a possibility that Jesus was born on December 25th. Um, That is a myth to say he absolutely most positively wasn't. Number three. This goes together with the first two. The church at the time, over the last 
few hundred years and really even older than that. The church chose December 25th to replace a pagan holiday. Now look, I have heard people confidently and braggadociously say that the church chose December 25th to replace a pagan holiday. And I'm just going to tell you, there is zero, zero evidence of this. It's not true. The early church and everything sought to distance itself from pagan worship. There is not a shred of evidence that the church chose December 25th as Jesus's birthday so that they could uh, somehow compete with Saturnalia or anything like that. No evidence that such a thing happened and lots of evidence against it. Number four, uh, four myth, fourth myth. Actually, this will be the fifth myth too. The song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. That one song title contains like two and a half myths. First, there were three gifts, not necessarily three men. Uh, We know there were at least two uh, because it's in the plural when Matthew talks about it, but we're not told that there was three. Maybe there was three. Maybe there was 13. We don't know, but they brought three gifts. Second, they weren't kings. They were magoi, which would maybe be Persian or Babylonian priests of Zoroaster or uh, magi. The Greek is magoi there. But uh, Justin Martyr, very early in 160 AD, said that these guys were from Saudi Arabia. So probably not from what people call the Orient, which is kind of an old and outdated expression. So these guys were probably from the Middle East, maybe from Babylon, um, maybe educated by Daniel for the signs to look for. By the way, we do say the wise men came later, probably not the day or two after the birth of Jesus, because the text of Matthew indicates that they came to a house to see a young child or a padion. And it's true that a padion can refer to a toddler, but it can also refer to a baby. Eight-day-old Jesus is called a padion in Luke 1, so it's possible the nativity scenes with the wise men are okay, that maybe they really did come pretty early uh, to see Jesus. Probably not the day of, but who knows? It's possible. But... Our nativity scenes are not accurate if they are set in a stable or an inn or a cave because, and this is a big Christmas myth, number six, Jesus was not born in an inn or the stable of an inn or the cave behind an inn. Most likely, Jesus was born in a house. The word that has sometimes been translated as in, as in there's no room for them in the in, I-N-N, it's not actually the right word used for in. There's a different word used in the Bible, even by Luke, for in, as in hotel. The word used by Luke elsewhere to refer to an upstairs guest room is the word used here, cataluma. And so what Luke is telling us is that the upstairs guest room of this house where Jesus was born was full. But this doesn't mean that it was an inn. It was a cataluma, which is a guest room. This is a a house, not like a six or seven room house like uh, many of you have today, but a house with sort of a main living level and then an upper room where people could sleep and a lower room where on cold nights the animals would be brought inside, where the manger would be, where you would store things, etc. The family would probably sleep on the main level. This would almost like be a basement in modern house kind of parlance. 
and very likely Jesus was born in a basement type area and genuinely laid in a manger of food trough, but it was a basement area. Now, that gets us to myth number seven. The Bible never mentions a stable. Some people assume stable because they hear the word manger. But the thing is, any first century person or any Palestinian reading the phrase that Mary laid Jesus in a manger would immediately assume that the birth did not take place in a stable, but in a private home, because he would know that mangers are built into the floor of the raised terrace, like the bottom level, of the peasant home. So this would be completely normal for that kind of situation. So, hate to burst your bubble, but it really appears that Jesus was born in the lower level, like the basement level of a regular old home, not an inn, not a stable, not a cave. That's kind of odd. And um, the reason a manger was there is because in almost every first century house in Palestine at the time, the family would have had their manger on that ground floor, that basement level level floor. Myth number seven, Mary probably didn't deliver Jesus the night they arrived in Bethlehem. So the Bible says Joseph and Mary went up to Bethlehem and while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. That's Luke 2, 4, and 6. We can easily assume a few weeks have passed, maybe even a month or so. Joseph, most likely being a considerate husband, and uh, a good guy would have started the four to five day journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem probably several weeks before her due date. So the Bible doesn't really give us an indication that Jesus was born as soon as Joseph and Mary set foot in Bethlehem. That probably is added for a little bit of drama to the story, but the Bible doesn't really describe it that way. The Bible says they were there for a while and then it was time for her to give birth. So Number nine myth. The Bible mentions no donkeys in the birth narrative. None. Actually, no animals whatsoever. No camels, no rattlesnakes, no Gila monsters, no giraffes. Of course, a manger implies animals, but none are mentioned. No innkeepers are mentioned. No snow is mentioned. So, were these things there? I don't know. It's possible. I guess probably not the Gila monster or the giraffe part. But... uh, it's assumed that Mary might have rode a donkey to Bethlehem, just the Bible doesn't tell us that little detail or not. Final myth. It was not a silent night, despite the song. It was most likely a very loud night. There was an army of angels loudly praising God. There was a woman screaming in the pain of delivery. Have you ever been to somebody being birthed? Uh, I have, and uh, without epidurals or painkillers, It can be really, really painful. I gather, never experienced it myself, but even with epidurals and painkillers, it can be very painful. There was a dragon attacking. Maybe that was a spiritual dragon attacking in a spiritual sense, but uh, there was also war in heaven, according to Revelation 12. So, silent night, peaceful night, no, loud, crazy night. Well, what's the point? I guess... The point is that we should get our information from the Bible and not from Christmas specials or movies or Christmas carols or Christmas cards or whatever. More appropriate here is that we have this uh, maybe a little bit overly sentimental and romantic view of Christmas in our minds that I actually think diminishes the truth and takes away from the reality of the birth and death of Jesus. The good news of Christmas is better 
by a massive amount than the best Christmas special or the best Hallmark Christmas movie or the best Netflix Christmas movie. It's better than the best myth or made-up thing or TV portrayal of the nativity story. The Bible story is mind-blowing. While we were sinners, God sent his son to become a baby. Would you do something like that? Become a tiny baby so that you could save a bunch of ingrateful sinners? I know I wouldn't. And I praise God that God the Father did love us that much and that Jesus did come. All right, well, let's keep reading. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 1. Then Hezekiah sent word throughout all Israel and Judah, and he also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh to come to the Lord's temple in Jerusalem to observe the Passover of the Lord the God of Israel. For the king and his officials and the entire congregation in Jerusalem decided to observe the Passover of the Lord in the second month because they were not able to observe it at the appropriate time. Not enough of the priests had consecrated themselves and the people hadn't been gathered together in Jerusalem. The proposal pleased the king and the congregation, so they affirmed the proposal and spread the message throughout all of Israel from Beersheba to Dan to come to observe the Passover of the Lord, the God of Israel in Jerusalem, for they had not observed it often as prescribed. So the couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the hand of the king and his officials, and according to the king's command, saying, Israelites, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, so that he may return to those of you who remain, who have escaped the grasp of the kings of Assyria. Don't be like your ancestors and your brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their ancestors, so that he made them an object of horror as you yourselves see. Don't become obstinate now like your ancestors did. Give your allegiance to the Lord and come to his sanctuary that he is consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that he may turn his burning anger away from you. For when you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will receive mercy in the presence of their captors and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful. He will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. The couriers traveled from city to city in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulon, but the inhabitants laughed at them and mocked them. But some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulon humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also the power of God was at work in Judah to unite them to carry out the command of the king and his officials by the word of the Lord. A very large assembly of people was gathered in Jerusalem to observe the festival of unleavened bread in the second month. They proceeded to take away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and they took away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and Levites were ashamed, and they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the Lord's temple. They stood at their prescribed posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests flattered the blood received from the Levites, for there were so many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves, and so the Levites were in charge of slaughtering the Passover lambs for every unclean person to consecrate the lambs to the Lord. A large number of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulon, were ritually unclean, yet they had eaten the Passover Passover, contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah had interceded for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement on behalf of whoever sets his whole heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of his ancestors, even though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. So the Lord heard Hezekiah, and healed the people. The Israelites who were present in Jerusalem observed the festival of unleavened bread seven days with great joy, and the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day after day with loud instruments. Then Hezekiah encouraged all the Levites who performed skillfully before the Lord. They ate at the appointed festival for seven days, sacrificing fellowship offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. 
the whole congregation decided to observe seven more days, so they observed seven days with joy, for King Hezekiah of Judah contributed 1,000 bulls and 7,000 sheep for the congregation. Also, the officials contributed 1,000 bulls and 10,000 sheep for the congregation, and many priests consecrated themselves. Then the whole assembly of Judah with the priests and Levites, the whole assembly that came from Israel, the resident aliens who came from the land of Israel, and those who were living in Judah rejoiced. There was great rejoicing in Jerusalem, for nothing like this was known since the days of Solomon, son of David, the king of Israel. Then the priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, and their prayer came into his holy dwelling in heaven. Amen. Zechariah chapter 12. A pronouncement. The word of the Lord concerning Israel, a declaration of the Lord who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundation of the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. Look, I will make Jerusalem a cup that causes staggering for the peoples who surround the city. The siege against Jerusalem will also involve Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who try to lift it will injure themselves severely when all the nations of the earth gather against her. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. I will keep a watchful eye on the house of Judah, but strike all the houses of the na- horses of the nation with blindness. Then each of the leaders of Judah will think to himself, The residents of Jerusalem are my strength through the Lord of armies, their God. On that day I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the peoples around them on the right and the left, while Jerusalem continues to be inhabited on its site in Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of David's house and the glory of Jerusalem's residents may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that on that day the one who is weakest among them will be like David on that day, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. On that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, And they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of David's house by itself and their women by themselves, the family of Nathan's house by itself and their women by themselves, the family of Levi's house by itself and their women by themselves, the family of Shammai by itself, and their women by themselves, all the remaining families, every family by itself, and their women by themselves. On that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. Amen. Revelation chapter 16 verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. The second poured out his bowl into the sea. It turned to blood like that of a dead person, and all life in the sea died. The third poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water say, You are just the Holy One who was and who is, because you have passed judgment on these things, because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. You have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar say, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and people were scorched by the intense heat. So they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. 
The fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues because of their pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they did not repent of their works. The sixth poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that they may not go around naked and people see his shame. So they assembled the kings at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Then the seventh poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since people had been on the earth. So great was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell from the sky on people and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail because that plague was extremely severe. Lord, have mercy. Well, friends, may his mercy cover you and go ahead of you and behind you. May his grace be on you. May you know him and know his word and walk in it. May you walk in wisdom and abide in Jesus. Good day to you and Godspeed.